morning. We find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So as we begin, let us begin there. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of God. And with that, please be seated. A little over seven years ago, my wife took our daughter, who at the time was our only child, out of town to visit some family, which left me home alone for a weekend, something I was eager to enjoy, as it had been quite a while since I had enjoyed some time by myself. The thing I was most excited about in that time was revisiting some of those meals I once loved dearly, back in my single days, things that had mysteriously disappeared off my weekly menu upon getting married. There were a number of things that I was looking forward to enjoying in those few days in solitude, but by far, the meal that I missed most, the meal I loved best and was most anticipating, was that which I had made more than anything else in high school and college. That meal, and for you cooks out there, write this recipe down. The meal consisted of a box of Velveeta shells and cheese. Delicious. Right, you're with me there. Mixed with one can of Hormel corned beef hash. Delicious, I know. And then mixed with heapings of mustard and Lowry's salt. This was a meal I ate countless times in high school and college. A meal that filled my belly. A meal that I swore tasted amazing. And a meal that I was always confused by and, and the response it drew from those around me. As my parents were disgusted in high school, my college roommates were disgusted in college, and even my wife, who loved me most, couldn't stand me cooking it in her house. I was confused by their hatred, and so I was so excited to try this meal once again. And as soon as they left, I looked forward to, to mixing those precious ingredients together. I loved that smell of the corned beef hash as it sizzled in the pan. I loved the plop of that fake cheese that was squeezed out of a bag of Velveeta. And I loved the smell of mustard as I added spoonful after spoonful to the, to the pot. It is perhaps no surprise to any of you that upon tasting this meal, I thought, something's changed. <laughs> this is not as delicious as I remember it being. And I would love to tell you that after taking a few spoonfuls, I put the pot down, realizing my mistake, but no, no. I ate the whole pot just like I did back in college and high school because I knew that I once loved this meal. I knew that it was delicious at one point in time, and, and so I knew the mistake must have been mine. My body, of course, hated me for those decisions, for those many bites, and I suffered the consequences. And it was only that one meal that convinced me that, that much of those tastes I once had and many of those things I longed for from my single days were actually garbage. It really wasn't good at all. These were not things to be missed. These certainly were not things to be tried again. These were things to gladly remove from my life. And by the grace of God, I have stayed away from that meal ever since. Now, even if you have not enjoyed that type of meal in your life, all of us, as we grow older, have tastes that change. 
There are things that you once loved that if you tried now, you would realize ah, that was never good. Right? Because as you grow older, your palate develops, and you appreciate different flavors, different tastes, different qualities of food. And there are certain things then that, that naturally we move forward as we grow up, as we mature. And the same is certainly true when it comes to our own spiritual habits as well, isn't it? For there are things that, as unbelievers, we all could enjoy, that we could do without feeling any guilt, any dissatisfaction. But if we were to step back into those things now, suddenly it wouldn't hold the same appeal to us. It wouldn't be quite as sweet. It wouldn't be quite as enjoyable. The reason for that is because our spiritual tastes also have changed. God has taken the scales off our eyes so that we can see that that which we once loved actually is a waste of time. It too is garbage. It is terrible for us. But we live in a world that still is consumed by those same tastes. We're surrounded by people daily who, who throw that in your face and they say, no, no, trust us, believer. What we have is worth tasting. It is sweet. It is beautiful. Just, just enjoy it for the moment. And regardless of how mature we are as believers, there is that lingering temptation to go back to it and think, well, maybe, maybe the mistake was mine. Maybe there is something desirable, something beautiful in that past life. And so daily we are left with this choice of what will we follow after, which tastes will we honor. As we look at our passage this morning, John gives us this, this helpful reminder of the fact that that which we once loved really is quite disgraceful. And even though we might occasionally long for that taste and view it as beautiful when viewed in all truth, it is revealed to be a waste of time. It is revealed to be garbage. And so we are reminded both of the folly of pursuing it, and in so doing, we're reminded of the true beauty, the true worth, worthiness of that which is from God. As we look at it this morning, then we will see those two options, that which was before our faith and that which stands before us now. We'll see why we cannot choose that which is of the world, and my prayer is that we might in turn be all the more motivated by the new taste that Christ has given us. With that being said, before we dig into these two opposing loves that are before us, let me open us up in a time of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time today. Already we are so encouraged by seeing the four examples that were before us, four examples of men and women who have had the scales removed from their eyes, who were shown the error of their ways, who were shown the truth of the gospel. And we know that can only come by your work, God. That can only come by your sovereign hand. It saves us. And so I thank you for each one of those individuals that step forward. And I thank you for the example they are of obedience and the reminder they are of the beauty of the gospel, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. As we consider their testimony and now consider the words of John, might we be reminded of how blessed we are as believers. God, might we be reminded of the folly of, of being attracted to that which is of the world. Might we remember the bitterness that comes from the tastes of the world. And might we be all the more inclined to appreciate the beauty that is set before us in Christ. And as we do so, Lord, might we be driven to pursue Christ with a devoted heart, knowing that he alone is worth our love, worth our devotion. If there is anyone here who does not yet know you, Lord, who has not yet had their scales removed from their eyes, God, open their eyes this morning. Save them from their sin. Cause them to see that life is found in you and you alone. Bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin examining our text this morning, we begin with this basic command set forth in verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2, in which we are given this choice between two opposing loves. Again, follow along with me as I read. There, John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. As John 
transitions back into a, a message that speaks more to a message of encouragement, a message of, of perseverance. He reminds the believers of these two choices set before him, and he, he speaks of this idea of love. And as John speaks of this, he, he reminds us that ultimately we have two options, but really only one choice that we can make. Those two options is that we can either love God, love the things of God, loving the brethren and sisters that we have in faith, or we can love the world. And in making this distinction and speaking of love in this way, we immediately see that John, and really all the Bible, speaks of love in a way that is very different from the way our world speaks of love, doesn't he? For he describes love as your choice, something you choose to do. This stands in direct contrast to the typical language many in our culture use when they talk about the heart wanting what the heart wants. The idea that the heart is outside of of your control, and so, well, you can't help what you're attracted to, you can't help what you pursue. On a perhaps uh, more innocent level, you hear people speaking of falling in love with someone as if it is something that is out of their control, it's something they didn't see coming, it just happened. There's nothing you can do about that. That type of language sounds romantic, I know. It sounds sweet, but it's quite naive. And and it it demonstrates a lack of understanding of, of how your will is at work. Because ultimately, when we see love in a passage like 1 John 2, and when we see throughout Scripture, love is never just an accident. It is far more than just attraction. For love speaks of this continuous action. Love is the idea of pursuing something you desire, constantly setting your mind upon that thing. Love is to be taken up with that which attracts you to it. And so even if you perhaps do not remember choosing to be attracted to something, choosing to desire something, you do know that you're responsible for how you respond to that attraction. You have to make the choice of whether you will pursue it, which is love, or whether you will deny it, which is the opposite of love. This is different from the way the world speaks of love. Not only that, but John also tells us that in making this choice, we can either be objectively right or objectively wrong. Again, something the world does not want to say concerning our choices and loving something. The world will tell you, no, you you love whatever your heart directs you to. There is no right or wrong. There is only love. But John comes in and he says, no, nope. You can be dead wrong in your choice. You can be right if you choose God. We talked about that already in 1 John 1 and 2. You can be correct in, in choosing to pursue he who is pure and the gospel that is pure and brings light and life. Or you can be wrong. The wrong choice, of course, is the love of the world. This is the bad choice, John says. This is the harmful choice. And so we will see here in a moment what he means by the world, but from the beginning it is important to understand broadly what the world is in John's mind. For it's important to see that John is not speaking just of of things that we can enjoy in this life. John is not saying you can't love a good meal here in this life or you can't enjoy good friendships or just enjoy entertainment for that sake. No, no. I think biblically we see God has given us many good gifts to enjoy in this life. There are many beautiful things we can behold, many good meals we can eat, many good friendships we can gain. All of these things I think can be done well and in a way that's honoring to God. And John's concern is not just enjoying life. His concern is, is setting our heart upon the world itself. Namely, the, the pursuits of this world, those things that are in direct opposition to God. This is the world that John warns us against. If you turn back to Ephesians, you see 
um, Paul warns in a similar way against the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks to the world in the same way in verses 1 through 2 when he says to believers, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is the world of which John is warning us of. Those beliefs, those desires, those, are per, those pursuits, which are under the power of the evil one, under the power and reign of Satan. It is out of that world that God has saved you, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And so John says to return to that world, to set your sights on that which God saved you out of, is, is wrong, believer. You cannot choose that former love. It is directly opposed to the love of God. And so as we begin, we see that there is this daily choice before us. That former life, the world, and that new life we have in Christ. We can either love the former or love the present. And that command seems simple enough. And I trust, regardless of how mature you are in your faith, if I were to ask you, believer, do you love Jesus or do you love Satan? You'd be smart enough to choose Jesus, right? Believer, do you choose to be good or choose to be bad? Do you love goodness or badness? Well, you're going to love that which is good, that which is righteous. It's pretty obvious. So the question we must ask, of course, is, well, why? John, why would he even need to give us this command? It's pretty clear, right? We all know we should not love the world, that we love God, but it's not quite that simple in daily life, is it? For as I mentioned earlier, we live in a world in which everyone around us is consumed by those same desires. They're consumed by those things of the world. They're consumed by those same tastes we have left behind. And in the midst of that consumption, it is easy for us to look around and think, well, again, did I get something wrong here? Maybe I'm the foolish one. Maybe I'm missing out on something. And without realizing it, as Christians, we can slowly begin to to mix in the things of the world and the things of God. and, And we can try to justify that and think, well, maybe I can love God and just maintain just a a little interest in that which was my former life. And so it's to show us how foolish that is and how wrong that is, John will now give us two reasons why we have to choose between these opposing loves, why we can't have the best of both worlds. The first reason, found in the second half of verse 15 and into verse 16, speaks to the exclusivity of these opposing loves. Again, look with the text with me, if you will. Picking up in verse 15b into 16, he says... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Having clearly spoken to these two options that exist before us daily, John now reminds us that these two options are by definition incompatible. One rules out the other. You cannot have it both ways, for if you love the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in you. The book of James speaks a similar truth. In James chapter 4, verse 4, we read this familiar passage. Oh, wait a minute, sorry. James chapter 4, we read this idea that he who is friends with the world cannot also be friends with God. You cannot be friends with two opposing figures. The language of James, I think, is helpful because it reminds us that we are speaking of a relationship here. 
And one cannot claim to be in a relationship with a pure and holy God and also in a relationship with this impure, wicked world. It doesn't work. In a similar way, in Matthew chapter 6, 24, Jesus speaks of the fact that we cannot serve both God and money. We cannot worship before the idols of this world and simultaneously claim to be worshiping God. The two are set against each other. Point being here is we're not discussing the distinction between a love for strawberry ice cream versus chocolate ice cream. No. We're discussing the difference between love and hate. The, the difference between peace and war. You must choose one or the other. I think we all understand this at one level, for we understand that in choosing God, we're choosing that which is for his glory. We're choosing that which is pure. We're choosing that which is selfless. We've seen this already earlier on in 1 John chapter 2 when he speaks of the necessity of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. When he speaks of the necessity of confessing our sin, leaving it all behind. And we understand the love of God in that way, we can then see just how radically different the love of the world is. In fact, you see the love of the world described there in verse 16. Again, see the way that John describes it. Explaining why the two cannot exist simultaneously, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Here we have that definition of what is in the world, what is of the world. And here we have very briefly why these two things clearly cannot exist side by side with the love of God. In describing the love of the world, we see John break it down in, in these three categories. These three different types of lusts or desires. All driven by a lust for self, a, a, desire, to make great one, uh, a desire to make oneself great. We see them broken into categories of, of lust of the eye or lust of the flesh, lust, lust of the eyes, and pride of possessions or life. The lust of the flesh, it seems here, are those inner desires, those things we are born with. That desire for control, that desire for for ultimately wealth, but the desire to do those things which God has commanded us not to do. If you've ever spent much time around a toddler, you see these lusts of the flesh early on perfect timing with a child crying, right? You see how clear these lusts are. For you do not have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child that, that they need to stick up for themselves and put their own needs ahead of their others. No, a child will naturally do that. And those lusts and those desires do not go away as we get older, do they? Some of us get better at hiding them. We're all driven by the same lust as a toddler. We all want control. We all want power. And as we're driven by those things, you see them communicated in, in arrogance, in selfishness, and greed. These are the same lusts that we see in children, and the same lusts that we see in adults as well. These are these inner desires, the flesh in which we live. Unfortunately for us, those lusts do not end internally. There is also the second category, those external temptations. John here speaks of the lust, secondly, of the eyes. In describing the lust of the eyes, he speaks of, of those external temptations the world sets before us. Those things which daily are put before your eyes in which the world says, look at this, taste this, enjoy this, this is good, this is sweet, this is beautiful. If you want power, this is how you get it. If you want fulfillment, this is how you get it. And we are bombarded with these temptations daily. 
And as these temptations come before us, oftentimes they, they just inflame those inner temptations, that lust of the flesh that already exists, and, and suddenly we see the, the manner by which we can obtain that which we desire. Suddenly we see the world understands us better than we realize, and, and there, if I just step forward, if I just, if I just partake of that, then, then I will be satisfied. These are the temptations the world puts before us, and time does not permit us to list off the countless number of things we see this uh, performed by in the world today. For we see rampant sexual immorality put before us daily. Daily. We see countless examples of pride set before us daily. Countless encouragements to stand up for yourself, to put yourself first. We live in a society that is built largely, in the eyes of many, upon this thirst for ambition, this thirst to make one's, na- one's name great. That is what drives so many in our culture today. And if we do not name it for what it is, it's easy to suddenly fall into it ourselves, not realizing that those are the lust of the eyes. Those things are opposed to the character of God. They're driven by selfish ambition. And again, they do not simply stop when we partake in these things, for as you move on to that third category, you see that pride of life, that which can also be translated as a pride of possessions. It's that desire to to be defined by, by your personal wealth, what you've accomplished with your life. It is that famous parable that Jesus speaks of the wealthy man who builds up his wealth, who stores it in silos and can say, look at this. Look at what have I accomplished. James speaks of similar, in a similar way to that man. Again, we live in a society in which examples of this are common. People love to define themselves by their personal wealth, by their possessions. And we are told, this is how you can prove to everyone your worth. This is how you can prove to everyone that you are successful. By your bank account by the size of your home, by the size of your family, whatever it is, it's possessions and it's taking pride, taking stock in that. And it's declaring that this is what defines me. This check, this home, this car, this relationship, this is what proves I'm worthy. All these things are set in direct opposition to God. For in all these things, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of a creator. There's no mention of gratitude. There's no mention of humility. There's only a constant reference to self and self-indulgence. Each of these lusts of the flesh, these lusts of the eyes, this pride of life, they all speak to unique facets of worldliness, don't they? But we also see very clearly how each of these work in perfect harmony. The book of James, again, speaks beautifully to how these lusts work together. In fact, if you would turn back to James, you see this familiar passage in which you see the lust of the flesh work with the lust of the eyes to send us down that path of sin. Speaking of temptation in James chapter 1, James says this in verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Here we see this picture of the lust of the flesh combined with the lust of the eyes, don't we? Those inner desires that perhaps lie dormant in you, but they are there nonetheless. When those dormant desires are, are suddenly put in view of these external desires, those external temptations, suddenly they, they take fire, suddenly they, they come to the surface and, and you are controlled by it in the moment. You seek out that which your flesh desires and so you partake in that which the world sets before you, not realizing 
that it's all a trap set by Satan, set by the world. And so you latch onto that trap like a, like a fish latching onto bait, only to be drug out to your death. This is the constant pathway the temptations take us down, the constant pathway the lusts drive us down in. But of course, even in reading these poetic images in James and reading that concern in 1 John, it's easy to still keep that, that process as, as something that is somehow detached from us, something we would never be so foolish to do. But we see how that path looks in, in the lives of countless godly men and women who have come before us. Countless biblical examples of people that, that are driven by their lusts of the flesh, that see an external temptation and then latch onto it, failing to understand what they're doing. The earliest example of this comes in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You see the lust of Eve referenced here, but no doubt just as common in the, the life of Adam. And turn back with me to those early chapters in Genesis chapter 3. And you can see how these lusts in the flesh are at work. In Genesis chapter 3, God has already given his people commands of what they are to do and not to do. Namely, they are not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes onto the scene for the first time. In Genesis chapter 3, we have this depiction of what happens in the mind of Eve when Satan lies to her and attempts her, and, and tempts her to eat that which she was commanded not to eat. Verse 6, we see this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Here in these few words, we see the intricacies of how sin works in our minds. For it wasn't simply that Satan told her a lie about the, the, the folly of God. It wasn't enough for him to simply cause her to question God. There was also these elements of, of her own desires that were in her flesh. There was that idea of, of the beauty of, of that fruit. For the first time, it seems, she, she looked at that fruit and saw it slightly differently than before. No longer was it that which was forbidden, but it was that which was desirable. And suddenly she saw it through a different lens. And as a result of seeing it as desirable for food, desirable to make herself great, and Adam does the same thing, they, they then partake of it, assuming that that will bring them happiness, but all the while, of course, just falling into the trap set by Satan. We see a similar pattern of behavior in the life of David, don't we? David, that great man of God, that man after God's own heart, the, the great king in the Old Testament. And yet, despite having followed God faithfully, we come to that terrible story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That story in 2 Samuel 11 in which David, instead of being out at war with the other kings, is back at home. And as he walks around the palace, what does he see? Ah, he sees Bathsheba. And he desires Bathsheba, for he no doubt sees her as beautiful. He sees her not as a person made in the image of God. He sees her as an object to behold, to conquer and so driven by that lust of the flesh, the temptation Satan set before his eyes, David partakes, no doubt assuming this was perfectly acceptable behavior for the king, believing in the moment that those lusts were essential for him to find fulfillment, all the while entirely forgetting the character of God, entirely, entirely forgetting the clear commands given to him. And just as we read in the story of Eve, so too in the story of David, there is this story that should shock us, for we should say, David, how foolish. You know better than that, David. You know better than that. How could you do something so foolish, so short-sighted? 
Well, he does so because he falls into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's a narrative we know well, both in the Old Testament and the New. In the New Testament, we see other examples that that demonstrate not just the slow, deliberate path this can look like, but the the quickness of how quickly the temptation can come about. I I think of the story of Peter in the garden. Uh, Peter, who had already demonstrated the lust in his own flesh for, for earthly power, right? Peter, who wants Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom so that he can be given the credit as well. That's what's driving Peter so frequently throughout the Gospels. And we see what that lust ultimately presents when people come to arrest Jesus in the garden. For in that moment, instead of thinking of what Jesus has already told them about his crucifixion, instead of listening to the many clear teachings of Christ regarding how the kingdom is built, what does Peter do? He pulls out the sword, lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Why would Peter choose to do something so foolish? Why would he do that? Well, because he already had that lust in his flesh for power. Because that was ultimately what was driving him. And as soon as that idol was being threatened, well, Peter had to act. And you can imagine Peter saying, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't think to do that. It's not as if we have a situation like David with Bathsheba where Peter probably had minutes, if not hours, to, to think through this. No, Peter just acted in the moment. But even in that second, we see the lust of the flesh boil over. We see how the temptation of the world works and we see the inevitable end. The fact of the matter is, is that people do this. Peter did this. David did this. Adam and Eve did this. We do this all for the same reason. We do it not because we view that which is shameful and and rightly labeled as shameful. But instead we view that which is shameful and we wrongly assume that it is beautiful, that it's to be desired. And the longer we allow our, our eyes to gaze upon it, the longer we allow our fallen minds to think upon the joys that it could present to us, we too walk down that primrose path to destruction. We too demonstrate exactly what James tells us happens in James 1. We fall into that lust of the flesh. We give weight to the lust of the eyes and we take pride in doing that which God forbids. Again, it's a narrative we've all read many times. The question we must ask ourselves, believers, is is where are we guilty of this in our own lives? We see it frequently throughout Scripture. And we know we are sinful. But we also know that the devil schemes against us. We also recognize that the devil is clever. The devil knows where your blind spots are, believer. He knows your weaknesses. And so while you may not be so foolish to fall into that temptation of the eyes that befalls your brother or sister in Christ, you have an equally foolish and obvious weak spot to Satan. What is it, Christian? Perhaps it's power. We live in a culture that's obsessed with power, that justifies any number of wicked sins to, to gain that power. Is that your weakness, brother and sister? Do you desire to make your name great or to be a part of a group that's seen as great and powerful and mighty? Maybe it's greed. Maybe you're driven by the constant thirst for greater wealth for greater finances, and so you don't mind a little dishonesty here or there. Tax season is amongst us. How tempting it is to to try to just steal and take just, just a cent more from the government. At times, these lusts of the flesh look far more innocent, of course. We can be controlled by a lust of power and greed that takes the form of, of putting all of our pride in, in our namesake, putting all our pride in our family, 
And so we, we make that the end all, be all desire in our own lives. Perhaps it is something obvious like sexual immorality. You've allowed the world to define what is right versus what is impure. And so you allow your eyes to view that which is disgraceful to God. We all have these weaknesses. Every single one of you. Every single one of us. And as believers, when we read 1 John, we're reminded that, that while those weaknesses exist, while those tastes still linger that cause us to desire that former life, they are still inexcusable. For we cannot simultaneously pursue God and all of His holiness. We cannot pursue that which is characterized by the kingdom of light and simultaneously find ourselves driven to pursue that which God hates, that which God has forbidden us. And so John tells us, brother and sister in Christ, you cannot love these two loves for they are mutually exclusive. To love the world is to deny God. It is to deny His holiness. And it is to choose a path that sets you in the completely opposite direction. And so there's a reason why we cannot choose both for they are both set in opposite pathways. This alone should cause us to realize the folly of following after that which is worldly. This alone should cause us to question what we are actively pursuing. What would define our own love. But as we continue on in our passage, we see one final reason given as to why we cannot love both God and the world. Why these two loves are in opposition. That reason is because just as there are two different sets of path, or paths set before us, so too are those paths headed in, in completely opposite directions. That brings us to then this final reason. that The reason why we can't love both is because of the end results of these opposing loves. Look with me again at the passage here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. There John says, The world is passing away. And also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The reason why you cannot cling to the world and cling to God at the same time is because one is headed down a path of shame and inevitable destruction, and the other pathway takes you down the path of joy and of eternal life. And as we see these two paths, we understand the the true folly at the heart of, of loving that which the world presents us or desiring that which the world pursues. For we're reminded immediately that that worldly love, those worldly pleasures are by definition temporary. And while they bring the initial taste of sweetness, they are inevitably bitter and sickening and poisonous. Again, John says that the things of the world are dying they are rotting away. John has already made this statement earlier in chapter 2 when he spoke of, of the fact that the kingdom of light is growing while the darkness is, is gradually being drowned out. Same thing is said here of worldly love or worldly temptations. Indeed, we've seen the reality of that, that temporary nature and the examples of sins we've already examined in Scripture, don't we? For Adam and Eve, in, in those moments of temptation of the garden, saw the, that forbidden fruit of desi as desirable, as beautiful, as the necessary tool for gaining wisdom. And in those precious few seconds, they, they slipped up. They chose to disregard the rule of God, and they spent the rest of their lives reaping the results. 
I think of that frequently. Can you imagine the pain and the anguish that Adam and Eve must have felt every day of their lives? They walked with God in the Garden of Eden. And because of a decision they made in the course of a few seconds, they spent the rest of their lives in the wilderness with thorns and thistles, with children that warred with each other. And they lived every day knowing it was because of their decision. How painful, how bitter that decision must have been. In a similar way, we see the end result of of David's temptation, don't we? For David undoubtedly believed that he could commit this sin of adultery and that no one would ever be the wiser. No one would ever find out. No one would do anything about it because he's the king. He can do whatever he chooses. If only David could have known that that act of infidelity would have brought about a baby, a baby whose life would be lost. If only could have known that that act of infidelity would bring about the death of the husband of Bathsheba and the death of many other soldiers along along that husband's side. If only David could see that this was the beginning of his own downfall. And that as a result of falling into that initial uh, sweetness, he spent the rest of his life tasting that bitter gall of his adulterous ways. For David's kingdom crumbled about him. I think of that when I read the words of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. For you know, undoubtedly, David would have passed that along to his son Solomon, although it seems Solomon himself failed to appreciate it. When speaking of sexual sin, In the book of Proverbs, as we oftentimes read, we hear these words concerning infidelity, concerning the adulteress. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3, we read, The lips of an adulteress drip honey, smoother than oil is in her speech, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a double-edged sword. That same truth can be said of every single sin. In the short term, it feels glorious. Sin is enjoyable in the moment. When you partake, when you fall into that temptation, you know that at least for a second you like it because it, it feeds your soul, your, your lusts of the flesh. But that enjoyment is so brief, so short-lived. It was true in David's time. It remains true in our own world today, doesn't it? We live in a world that is obsessed with the short-term pleasures that are put before us. There's countless examples of this, but I think it's best seen in in the world of the digital digital world, isn't it? And for so many people in our culture live in front of a screen. We walk around with our phones before our faces. We sit at home in front of our laptops, in front of our computers, in front of our smart TVs, not realizing that we're being drugged by the people who design these programs. We live in a society that that sits before those screens and they they scroll up and up and up and up and up and up for hours on end. Not viewing any given picture for more than two, three seconds at a time. Why do they do this? Well, they do it for that, that hit of dopamine. They do it because in the moment it feels so right, it feels so good. But that joy goes away quickly, so they have to scroll up again. They have to click on another site. And this isn't just something that teens do, of course, right? There's a reason why our news stories have been reduced to two-minute two minute clips online. It's to make you continue to click the next one and the next one and read the next story. And we do all this thinking our souls are being nourished, thinking we're being fed, when in reality, we're cattle being driven through the slaughterhouse. We're being numbed. We're being drugged. We're not being built up. We're not being encouraged. We're eating garbage that is intended to distract us. 
And while it might be sweet in the moment, it leads to suffering. It leads to great destruction. As believers, we must remember that. When we choose the world, we're choosing something that will bring you shame, and we all have experienced that shame. And we are choosing something which ultimately is destroyed in the end of judgment. And direct opposition to that, of course, is that other path of God. And unlike the lusts of the world that are dying, that are decaying, we read this description of the, the life according to God. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Unlike the individual that clings to darkness, who dies in the darkness, the one who clings to light lives for eternity in the light of God. You read throughout all of the Old Testament of, of so many different attributes of God being everlasting. We read throughout the Psalms the idea of the faithfulness of God endures forever. The righteousness of God endures forever. And here in 1 John we read the child of God endures forever. And we endure forever for the same reason we discussed last week in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. We endure forever because we're kept by the Father forever. We endure forever because we live in His kingdom that never comes to an end. And as we live in that kingdom, we learn day by day how much sweeter the things of God are than the things of the world. We learn how much greater, how much more nourishing the things of God are than the garbage this world continually dumps upon us. We learn that the gospel that we believed as infants in Christ only grows in its beauty, only grows in its magnificence every time we look at it. We learn to appreciate why Moses chose to do what he did in his own life. We see that, that life of Moses and his example spoken of power, powerfully in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, listen to this depiction of, of Moses' own choice when given the choice between riches in Egypt and the kingdom of God. We read this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 through 26, or 23 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to that reward. Can you imagine the riches that, that Moses saw? I mean, since we already know the end of the story, we think his choice is obvious, don't we? Well, of course he's going to choose God because God leads them into the promised land, but, but consider what Moses gave up. And perhaps the most powerful, richest kingdom in the world at the time. And Moses had it all before him. And he said no to it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how many of us would would be tempted to stay at least a few more days there in Egypt. And honestly. And yet Moses turns it down because he understands that those pleasures were passing, they were temporary, but the, the riches of God, ultimately the riches in Christ are eternal. That light just continues to grow brighter and brighter. If it was true for Moses, how much truer is it for us who have Christ, who have the gospel? How much more beautiful is the message we have today than anything Moses could have possibly ever appreciated or predicted? Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, we have the most precious, most beautiful, most joyful gift that is beyond our comprehension. 
but it requires us to take the time to, to sit back and really appreciate it. To sit back and behold the beauty because as we do this again, we just grow in our appreciation of it. Describing this growing beauty of the gospel and of God's kingdom. Author Jake Metter says this, particularly about our future in heaven. He compares gazing upon God with gazing upon a classic work of art. The author says, if we spend two hours staring at Rembrandt's prodigal son, we surely will see things though, that we would not have seen if only given an hour to view it. This is true of all good things that God gives us, for the inside is larger than the outside. And this is why a literally endless ocean of time to exist in God's world is such glorious news. Imagine the beauties we'll find in the world given a literal eternity to explore it. The reason why we choose the path that is honoring to God, the reason why we choose that which is love for God is because ultimately we're able to see that it doesn't even begin to compare, the world doesn't even begin to compare with the things of God. And so as we read these words of John in John chapter 2, we are reminded that the reason why we choose God instead of the world is, is first of all because we can only choose one for they are all mutually exclusive. But we also choose the things of God because ultimately they're exponentially more beautiful, exponentially more joyful, exponentially more worthy of our pursuit and love than anything we can ever find in this life. This is true regardless of your faith. This is true regardless of your beliefs. The only question is, do you, do you see it? Do you understand it? For all it's worth. Do you understand that the life of God is objectively infinitely greater than the life of the world? That the riches of Christ are objectionally infinitely more glorious than the riches of an entire kingdom? Well, believer, I pray you do, because if you do not, you lose your joy. If you do not, you will be fooled by the temptations of this world. And so for all of us, as we consider this message of John, my prayer is that we might see the gospel through the lenses which John viewed the world. For you who are unbelievers, I pray that the scales are taken from your eyes. For Satan has blinded you. And the world is desperately trying to convince you that you can find life in that which is death. That you can find beauty in that which is hideous. That you can find nourishment in that which is poison. Unbeliever, don't be fooled. See the gift of Christ as life. Place your faith in him today. Believers, us too, let us be careful not be fooled by this world. Let us daily fix our eyes on the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel. Let us daily pursue him out of love for him and let us enjoy his beauty, his grace, both now and for all eternity. Let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for the fact that you've saved us from that which is dark, that which is lifeless, that which is tasteless. And you've brought us into an eternal feast with your son, Jesus Christ. We deserve death, and you've given us life. We deserve destruction, and you've given us a new creation. God, might we remember the beauty of that new creation daily? Might we be driven to love that new creation, to love you, our creator, daily? And as we do so, Lord, might we not be lured by the world back to those old tastes, those old desires, but might we enjoy you now and enjoy you for all eternity, God. We love you so much and we praise you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.